This is study 5 in the book of Job, chapters 20 to 23. In these, Job begins to see his way forward. In chapter 20, Zophar is clearly convinced that Job is a sinner and is suffering as a direct consequence. He doesn't say so directly, but it is the obvious implication of what he says. In the Bible, sin is almost always a result of how somebody has failed to live well in relation to other people. It is seldom about a failure to live well directly towards God by failing to worship correctly or failing to follow the correct prescribed religious observances. So Zopha criticizes Job in his actions towards other people. Zopha raises another and more difficult question. He seems to suggest that there is a major difference between good and evil in how long they last. He says that evil is inherently short-lived, unlike good that lasts. Well, he doesn't actually say that good lasts longer, but that again would seem to be the strong implication of what he says. Listen out for those two implications as I read the chapter. Zophar says, My troubled thoughts prompt me to answer, because I am greatly disturbed. I hear a rebuke that dishonours me, and my understanding inspires me to reply. Surely you know how it has been from of old, ever since mankind was placed on the earth, that the mirth of the wicked is brief, the joy of the godless lasts but a moment. Though the pride of the godless person reaches the heavens and his head touches the clouds, he will perish forever, like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, Where is he? Like a dream he flies away, no more to be found, banished like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will not see him again. His place will look on him no more. His children must make amends to the poor. His own hands must give back his wealth. The youthful vigour that fills his bones will lie with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, and he hides it under his tongue, though he cannot bear to let it go, and lets it linger in his mouth, Yet his food will turn sour in his stomach. It will become the venom of serpents within him. He will spit out the riches he swallowed. God will make his stomach vomit them up. He will suck the poison of serpents. The fangs of an adder will kill him. He will not enjoy the streams, the rivers flowing with honey and cream. What he toiled for he must give back uneaten. He will not enjoy the profit from his trading for he has oppressed the poor and left them destitute. He has seized houses he did not build. Surely he will have no respite from his craving. He cannot save himself by his treasures. Nothing is left for him to devour. His prosperity will not endure. In the midst of his plenty, distress will overtake him. The full force of misery will come upon him, when he has filled his belly, God will vent his burning anger against him and rain down his blows on him. Though he flees from an iron weapon, a bronze-tipped arrow pierces him. 
He pulls it out of his back, the gleaming point out of his liver. Terrors will come over him. Total darkness lies in wait for his treasures. A fire unfanned will consume him, and devour what is left in his tent. The heavens will expose his guilt. The earth will rise up against him. A flood will carry off his house, rushing waters, on the day of God's wrath. Such is the fate God allots the wicked, the heritage appointed for them by God. Question. What do you think? Is it true that those who delight in evil things know that they do not last? Are they always looking over their shoulders, wondering whether they will be found out? Are good things always more enjoyable than those that are not good? The answer, well, that's a really difficult one, but it is worth thinking about. Think of the things that you do. Is it true that the enjoyment of the good lasts longer than the enjoyment of the not-so-good? I think it is, because I am happy to remember the good things I have done, but always try to forget the bad things. But that is a personal opinion with which not everyone would agree. Have you got a friend you could argue it out with? In the next chapter, 21, Job vigorously repudiates the implied accusation against him. He points out that some people behave very badly, but God does not punish them. He reckons that we all, good and bad alike, have to live in the middle of the NCL, the normal chaos of life. Here is chapter 21. Job replied, Listen carefully to my words. Let this be the consolation you give me. Bear with me while I speak, and after I have spoken, mock on. Is my complaint directed to a human being? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled. Clap your hand over your mouth. When I think about this, I am terrified. Trembling seizes my body. Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not on them. Their bulls never fail to breed. Their cows carve and do not miscarry. They send forth their children as a flock. Their little ones dance about. They sing to the music of tambrel and lyre. They make merry to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. Yet they say to God, Leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? But their prosperity is not in their own hands, so I stand aloof from the plans of the wicked. Yet how often is the lamp of the wicked snuffed out? How often does calamity come upon them, the fate God allots in his anger? How often are they like straw before the wind, like chaff swept away by a gale? It is said, God stores up the punishment of the wicked for their children. 
Let him repay the wicked, so that they themselves will experience it. Let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. For what do they care about the families they leave behind when their allotted months come to an end? Can anyone teach knowledge to God, since he judges even the highest? One person dies in full vigour, completely secure and at ease, well nourished in body, bones rich with marrow. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having enjoyed anything good. Side by side they lie in the dust, and worms cover them both. I know full well what you are thinking. Schemes by which you would wrong me. You say, where now is the house of the great, the tents where the wicked lived? Have you never questioned those who travel? Have you paid no regard to their accounts, that the wicked are spared from the day of calamity, that they are delivered from the day of wrath? Who denounces their conduct to their faith? Who repays them for what they have done? They are carried to the grave, and watch is kept over their tombs. The soil in the valley is sweet to them. Everyone follows after them, and a countless throng goes before them. So how can you console me with your nonsense? Nothing is left of your answers but falsehood. I introduced the idea of the NCL, the normal chaos of life, early in these studies, which may have surprised or even shocked you. My justification for doing so is here in this chapter, and will be confirmed in chapter 23. Very often, preachers and teachers will take a very simplistic line. Good things happen to good people, bad things to bad people. This may be very subtly done. When we were teaching in a school in Pakistan, many of the staff would tell the kids, your parents are doing good things, so no harm will come to them. They, the teachers, had a difficult time explaining what had happened when one of the parents was killed by a falling rock on a straightforward local walk. The NCL exists, as Job says. In the next chapter, Eliphaz accuses Job of wrongdoing, particularly to the defenceless, widows and orphans. I will read that now. Eliphaz says, Can a man be of benefit to God? Can even a wise person benefit him? What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? What would he gain if your ways were blameless? Is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your relatives for no reason. You stripped people of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry. Though you were a powerful man owning land, an honoured man living on it, 
and you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you, why it is so dark you cannot see, and why a flood of water covers you. Is not God in the heights of heaven? And see how lofty are the highest stars. Yet you say, what does God know? Does he judge through such darkness? Thick clouds veil him, so he does not see us as he goes about in the vaulted heavens. Will you keep to the old path that the wicked have trod? They were carried off before their time, their foundations washed away by a flood. They said to God, Leave us alone. What can the Almighty do to us? Yet it was he who filled their houses with good things. So I stand aloof from the plans of the wicked. The righteous see their ruin and rejoice. The innocent mock them, saying, Surely our foes are destroyed, and fire devours their wealth. Submit to God, and be at peace with him. In this way prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from his mouth, and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove wickedness far from your tent, and assign your nuggets to the dust, your gold of Ophir to the rocks in the ravines, then the Almighty will be your gold, the choicest silver for you. Surely then you will find delight in the Almighty, and will lift up your face to God. You will pray to Him, and He will hear you, and then you will fulfill your vows. What you decide on will be done, and light will shine on your ways. When people are brought low, and you say, Lift them up, then He will save the Duncoust. He will deliver even one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. I find that accusation interesting, because we've been watching a television drama series, Downton Abbey. It tells the story of a large household belonging to a senior nobleman, the Earl of Grantham. He is portrayed as having to take the decisions for a great many people, family, friends and servants. It is apparent that in many things, because he is the controlling boss man, he takes views that are strikingly different from those of just about everybody else around him. Perhaps this is what Eliphaz is highlighting here. Job had a huge household before the disasters hit him, and he had to make many decisions, being the controlling boss to an even greater extent than the Earl of Grantham. So, for instance, we read in verse 6 that he took clothes from the poor to guarantee payment of a debt. Faced with conflicting demands on his resources, Job has opted for the rich man's solution. He has been taking a rich man's view of what is right and what is wrong and needs to revise his thinking. So we read in verses 13 to 14, do you think the deep darkness hides you from God? Do thick clouds cover his eyes as he walks around heaven's dome high above the earth? 
and in verses 23 to 26. If you return to God and turn from sin, all will go well for you. So get rid of your finest gold as though it were sand. Let God all-powerful be your silver and gold, and you will find happiness by worshipping him. That all makes good sense. Trouble is, it is all wrong. It is not a true picture of Job. Job's self-portrait in chapters 29 and 32 is very different and fits much better the view we get from all the rest of the story. He was an essentially good and righteous man. To return to what Eliphaz said, the New Testament equivalent is when Jesus said to the rich young man, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Are you rich? Am I rich? Our probable reaction is to say, Of course not. But by the standards of the ages, we are rich. You are using a computer or a tablet to hear or read this. That is an item of enormously sophisticated luxury, unknown to the vast majority of those who have ever lived on this planet. We are rich. Question then. In what ways do you mistreat the poor? Who suffers so that you can eat cheap food, wear cheap clothes, and so on? Are the subtle ways that we, like Job, according to Eliphaz, live well because we are rich? The answer is up to you, of course, but these are difficult things to confront if you, like me, live in the affluent West. And so we come to chapter 23. Job continues to struggle with his problem, what is called the problem of theodicy. That is, how can we reconcile so much evil in the world with our understanding that God is a good God? First he struggles with his inability to get close enough to God to challenge him over what has happened. Here is that chapter 23. Job said, Even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy, in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. Would he vigorously oppose me? No, he would not press charges against me. There the upright can establish their innocence before him, and there I would be delivered forever from my judge. But if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed 
from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. But he stands alone, and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. He carries out his decree against me, and many such plans he still has in store. That is why I am terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. Job has a problem, but he is also close to, if not exactly a solution, at least to the best way forward for him, and indeed for us. He wants contact and fellowship with God, not a solution to the academic riddle of theodicy. He is very right to do so, and will eventually achieve that contact and fellowship in the last few chapters of the book. We have the same problem as Job. How can we understand the world in which we live, where so much can go wrong, and there is so much evil? And our solution is the same as his. We need to be close to God. We need fellowship with God. But we are much better off than poor old Job because we know about a broken, suffering God-man hanging on a cross, dying, sharing in all the worst that this world has. We are part of his people, Jesus' people. We have been united with him in a death like his. Therefore, we will be united with him in a resurrection like his, as Paul says in Romans 6. And as he tells the Colossian Christians in chapter 3, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Wow! Rejoice in whatever of this world's difficulties, troubles and agonies may come your way, because you have a glorious future with the risen Jesus.